And take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nahum in the Old Testament. Nahum chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6 as we continue our study in the book of Nahum. Nahum chapter 2 verses 5 and 6. And I've titled this sermon, Is There Anything Too Hard for God? We had a great week out in Wyoming and uh, at uh, Frontier Days. And I, I tell you what, why people would get on a bull and ride it when you should only make that for stake, I don't know. But I saw some guys, uh, they went airborne, okay. And I think in one of those uh, groupings, only two guys stayed a full eight seconds. And, and the rest of them were gone. And they'd say, this one was number four in the world. This was number three in the world. I saw number four in the world, number three in the world. One was number one, and he went flying too, you know. And so that was just something to watch. And then after they're off, it's amazing the guys that are there to rescue them. And I, I seen one guy just grab the bull by the horn to turn it. And that bull was going to go after him. And another guy jumped in between them. And that bull didn't know which one to hit. And... uh but it was it was interesting to see all of that, and and then we got in addition to that we uh, got to do some exploring around some mountains. I got to feed bison. I mean, out of my hand, put it in his mouth, and his tongue licked my thumb. And uh, uh, but bison's, and and then we got to um, uh, see the Thunderbird Air Show. That was tremendous, and and. We enjoyed that, uh, the horseback riding of the cowboys out there, and, and, and some of the things they did, I mean, putting their life at stake, I said, well, that's great. When they said they were making a million dollars, I began to understand why some of them did that. Some of them were millionaires that were doing that because they made a million dollars doing it. Uh, I think if you hit the ground enough times, you say, duh, what's that for? You know, I don't know, but it just seems like uh, they had a great time out there. Well, let's get away from that now and get... Uh, right in here to our text, Nahum chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. He shall recount his worthies, they shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the river shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. Now shall we pray, Father? I pray as we look into your word today, you'd help me to rightly divide it. But, Lord, again, even if I rightly divide it, it's not good if the Holy Spirit doesn't take the words home to the hearts of those that are here today, those that are listening over WTYG, as well as those that are watching by the live stream internet. And, Lord, I pray that that Spirit would just speak to hearts through all of this, edify the saints, but especially glorify the name of Jesus Christ. And, again, I would ask if there's one in this auditorium who does not know that they died today, that heaven's their home. I pray that today be the very day they come to Jesus Christ. We ask this in that precious and holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now in the last message, we considered the battle of Armageddon, and and we were looking at the idea of the battle and the chariots that are here. They jostle one against another. We saw in the previous verse, verse 4, I believe. And they, they, they... hit each other. They're just so close. And a lot of commentators have taken that to refer to modern automobiles. Uh, but these things are as torches 
There are weapons of war. We don't think of automobiles of weapons of war, unless you're driving on Highway 200. Um, but on the other hand, these are things that could be like tanks, mobile missile launchers, and things of that nature. And, and so perhaps that is, looking at that as, as much prophecy looks at that day, but jumps over the years of time into the last days of the tribulation hour uh, that is yet to come upon this earth. But at that day, it's Nineveh. Nineveh is about to be destroyed. She is considered well established. She has the great walls. She has a tremendous army. Those walls are believed to be impregnable. And it kind of reminds us of Revelation chapter 13, verse 4, which is yet to come, where he says, they worship the dragon, that's Satan, which gave power unto the beast, that's the Antichrist, that world leader, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him. Uh, the world will look at this beast, this Antichrist, as having power. Such power that not even God can overcome it. He just destroyed two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 that were the men of God. And so the world looks at this man as having great power. And yet, they'll think that God cannot overtake him. Kind of reminds you of the Titanic. They advertised it as the ship God himself could not sink. And in its maiden voyage... It hits an iceberg and sinks. Who made the iceberg? They, they gave God a challenge and he took them on it. And he sunk the Titanic. But when Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 19, verses 20 and 21, we see the first thing he does is he disposes of the Antichrist and his false prophet. And they're gone just like that. It's quick. And casts them into the eternal lake of fire. So with that background that we've covered. Now let's look at the, our text. And we see the formidable foe. In verse 5 it says. He shall recount his worthies. Now I want to consider. Formidable. Which is actually the word that I put in there. And the word worthies. Formid, formidable in the Webster's 1828 dictionary. Is defined as this. Exciting fear. An apprehension, impressing fear or dread to deter from approach or encounter. Webster uses other words for this word to be terrible, horrible, frightful. And that's behind the word formidable. And this is what Nineveh and its king Sennacherib had become to the rest of the world. They saw him as a formidable foe. He would go around and he would destroy completely. Nation after nation, city after city, level them. Take what he wanted of them. They could not stop him. He had a tremendous army, considered probably the number one army of their time, and it was. Well, now they're surrounding Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, who is the king at that time, does the only thing that he can do. 
That is, he turns to God. And he understands the question of our sermon. Is there anything too hard for God? No. So he knows to put this thing to the test. You know, isn't it interesting? In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, I think it is, or 32, chapter 32, that uh, God poses that same question. Is there anything too hard for God? Now, in the world's eyes, little Jerusalem, I mean, they don't have enough men to put on 2,000 horses, and they're surrounded by an army of 185,000, not only 185,000 people, but uh, these soldiers are well-trained soldiers. They've been victorious wherever they go. But sometimes God must wait until a Christian admits I just can't do it. There's nothing I can do. There's not anything I can do to help myself. Then God will help him. When he turns to God and realizes, I can't do it. If it's done, it'll be God that does it. We must learn how to give God glory in all things. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14, we're told about our salvation, that the Holy Ghost of God is the very earnest of our salvation. Now, you know that an earnest is money that, that is put down, and then if you don't come through with a payment, you lose that earnest money. And a lot of times, that's a good amount of money. Now, you don't want to lose that earnest. Well, you know what? God's Holy Ghost was the earnest of our salvation. When we got saved, the Holy Ghost came to live within us that very moment, and He's the earnest. For me to lose salvation, God's got to lose His Holy Ghost. Not going to happen. That's why my salvation is so secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would have to lose his Holy Spirit in order to lose our salvation. That's why I can say that even though I'm not worthy of his salvation, the day I received it and the day you receive it, you'll find that he can save you and nothing is too hard for God. I was sharing with our Sunday school teachers and I mean, our senior adult Sunday school class, and I know our uh, people got to hear him this week that went to the SWORD conference, uh, but Brother Mike Allison, I was listening to him on our radio station today, and he made a comment. I thought, man, that is tremendous. He, he, he was given an illustration. And he talked about that, that person, and, and it could be anybody, so I'll just kind of do this up a little bit. Here's a person that's a heroin addict. But not only a heroin addict, they've sold heroin to boys and girls and made addicts out of them. Some of them died and so many things happened and just terrible. There's been that uh, lady that has sold her body. There's that, that homosexual and all that and, and, and the murderers and things like that. And they've turned to Jesus Christ. And the moment they turn to him, he forgives them and cleanses them from all their sin. There's power in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, men may not forgive them, and people may have a hard time accepting it. But understand, when a person turns to the Lord, they turn from everything else. And as shared with the class today, too, is that people say, well, you've got to confess every sin you've ever committed. Look, next year I'm going to be 70. 70 years would not be enough time for me to, commit every, uh, to confess every sin that I've committed. I don't remember 90% of them. But you know what? When we do remember sin, make it right. Make it right with God. 
And if you've involved somebody else in your sin, then make it right with that person. But make it right with God. Always make it right with God. Now, the word that's in our text here, after a formidable foe, because the devil is a formidable foe for us, we can't overcome him. But greater is he, if you're saved, that is in you than he that is in the world. But the second word there is worthies. And that's the word our text uses. And the king recounts his worthies. The Antichrist, the beast, that world leader that's to come in the tribulation, will one day remove leaders in his coalition and set up ten others who will do his bidding and help him to try to accomplish his goal, which is world dominion. And he'll do that for the sake of the dragon who is Satan. So this word worthies is somewhat like a resume that someone would turn in to a job application. It tells of one's capabilities for the job to be done. And the idea here is of someone that is gallant, powerful. It was a word that was used when the warriors would return from a victory. And it would be used of the warriors, not just all of them, but of the ones that really stood out. They were the ones that were the, the, the guys that got the most accomplished. They were the ones that were more brave and, and, and stronger than the others. They're the ones that uh, accomplished the great work. The, they would be the ones that would get the medals. Kind of like David. He defeats Goliath. And as he comes back from the battle... They say, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. So what's he saying? He's just saying, he's one of the worthies. That's how they looked at these soldiers. And, and Sennacherib is counting his worthies. And we'll find that that same thing happens in the tribulation period when the Antichrist sets up those that will be over those ten nations that he'll set up to be in his coalition. And he removes the ones that are there and sets up his men, his worthies. Sometimes that word worthy was used of Messiah and Jehovah. Because there's nothing too hard for God. And it best applies to him. Now, you see why we say a formidable foe. Not only is there a wall going around Nineveh that nobody, though they've tried, has been able to penetrate. Armies have gone around and it was futile and, and they ended up having defeat trying to get into that city. And that city is not only has a great wall, it's defended by the heroic soldiers, the mighty, well-trained army, the worthy warriors. Many look at that army today as, as some would look at perhaps an athlete, a, a star athlete, a, a, a star magi- uh, musician. Uh, perhaps as we look in military terms, we'd, uh, the one that seems to stand out to everybody is Navy SEALs. Okay, and so that's the way they would look at those people. That's the way they would look at at that army. It's kind of like a manager of a baseball team just saying, I know who I want pitching the bottom of the ninth, the last game of the World Series. He's got his man that he wants on the mound because that's the man that's pretty sure to shut down the other team. And so that's what 
Sennacherib has these great walls and these great soldiers that are in his army that are defending it. And so no army, nobody's been able to penetrate or do anything about it to defeat them. All seems hopeless. Of course, we saw last time, God just sent just one of his angels. And 185,000 of that army died right there without Jerusalem having to lift a finger. Sennacherib returns to his palace. He returns there to his great city and the walls around his own sons kill him. But the city is still there. It's still supposed to be the great city, the great army, and nobody can penetrate it. Nobody can do anything about it. So everything seems hopeless. The impregnable fortress with a great army. The nations have tried. They're ready to give up. And you know that's what's so true today. All seems hopeless. We've seen many people that have gone from the true and right way and have gone to the left, to the more liberal side and faith and theology and the Word of God. And, and, and it's always a dreadful thing when you see it. But the Bible told us that happened, that in the last days they would give heed to seducing spirits that appeal to our flesh. A naturalistic world will not be won to Jesus Christ by a materialistic church. But even if the numbers dwindle, our God is still stronger than all the things of this world. Our God is still able to do it, and nothing is too hard for our God. All may seem hopeless in your life, you may feel the same way about life. You want to give up. Maybe you want to give up on a marriage. Maybe you want to give up on a holy life to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to give up on a ministry. You want to change and do what the world says to do. You want to do those things that the world wants you to do. But understand, man, uh, folks, that God is still God. And nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. One of the worst things in a marriage, or with a doctor, or with a pilot of a jet, is to lose your trust. You can love a spouse with all your heart, but if you lose your trust, there's going to be misery. You can have a doctor that you've gone to for years and then you get something and he doesn't find an answer right away and you wonder if he's capable. And although you had him for all those years, you begin to lose trust. A pilot can have a high rating and everything and then have one bad experience. Maybe something broke down on the jet and he landed safely. But now... He's lost trust in the jets that he flies. And so it's so easy that with the best things that we have in life to, to, to lose 
faith in them. It'll seem impossible. You can't do it. And when you live your life for Jesus Christ, you'll say, hey, everybody is saying things about me and they're doing things against me and it's too hard to do it anymore and I can't do it. I don't want to do it any longer. I just can't. You finally arrive where you realize you can't. God can. So you just trust God even at the last moment because nothing with God is impossible. So yes, it's hard to do it the right way. Do it the right way. He may not do it as fast as you want him to do it, but that's the test of faith. That's the test of your trust. And he will bring it about. Now, not only do we see the formidable foe, but next see the fortress of infamy. In the next part of verse 5, he says, They shall tr- uh, stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. They stumble in their walk. Well, why is that? They have reason to. They had trusted in this wall. Many had tried to do something to penetrate it and couldn't. They, they gloried in this wall. But it's brought down to the ground. A flood of waters that would have been unusual for that day. In that part. In that part where they were located. That would have been the most unusual thing to have a flood of water. Especially waters that strong. And they got the hole in the wall. Okay, they they brought it down. What man in all of his reasonings and ways could not do, God did. And he brought it down. And so they stumbled. It's God's doing, not man's. You know the word stumble means in the Hebrew to be weak, to be faint. And I find that interesting because these are the worthies. They're the gallant heroes. And now before the eyes of all the enemies who had feared them, they are weak and they are faint-hearted. And now God begins to move in judgment. And when God begins to move in judgment, no man, no power can stay his hand. The first thing he seems to do is to remove the object of their trust. You know, that's a biblical principle. In Proverbs chapter uh, 21, verse 22, a wise man scaleth the city of the mighty... And casts down the strength of the confidence thereof. You've got a big foe. Figure out how to destroy what their confidence is in. God did. He destroyed the confidence of those armies. And as Proverbs chapter 21 verse 30 says, There's no wisdom, there's no understanding, and there's no counsel against the Lord. Their defense is prepared. But their defense is only as good as the best minds of men and devils can prepare. Their wall is brought down. The enemy will come in as a flood. 
And there is absolutely nothing in Satan's arsenal that can stop the Lord. When he moves in judgment, there's no power in the universe that's too hard for him. But when you're in Jesus Christ, it's just the opposite. In Isaiah chapter 59 and and verse 19, it says, "So uh, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Hey, the Lord is an undefeatable foe to the world. To us, he's our high tower. He's our strength. He's our shield of safety. He is our God. And he never fails. Nineveh had conquered many people. They did the most unimaginable things, as you've read of Islam today, the things they've done to people. Uh, this country probably wrote the book on it. The things they would do and the things they would say to living, uh, do to living people is, is terrible. The depravity was completely seen in that. But now their city is completely eliminated. And now they're forgotten. By the way, let me tell you something. There's something to learn from that. There is a real, literal place called hell. There is a literal lake of fire. And that lake of fire will be a testament to the fact that God is holy. And vengeance belongeth unto the Lord. He will repay. It's coming. It's coming. Do you know if you died today that heaven's your home? Yes. We've seen the formidable foe. This fortress of infamy. Because of all the terrible things it did is now brought to the ground. But last we see the fatal fall. Now all men will learn in these last days when the tribulation period comes. All men will learn that there is nothing too hard for God. The gates of the river, verse 6 says, shall be opened. And the palace shall be dissolved. The place of their confidence, the place of their trust, finds that God opens the gates of heaven. He sends floods of water, a river of water, and that place is dissolved. And God did such a complete job of it. 300 years later, Alexander the Great rides chariots and horses over that place and didn't even recognize or understand that there at one time underneath that sand was a city that was the most powerful in the world. 300 years into eternity, you are long forgotten if you're in hell. Even if all of your friends go to hell, you won't see them as a place of separation. 
And what, what a terrible thing because Jesus Christ died for you. He was buried and he rose from the dead. He did that for you so you wouldn't have to go to that place. You could be reunited with loved ones. Loved ones who received Christ. And to pass up what he's done for us. How foolish. Totally foolish. The place of their confidence is destroyed. They thought that those walls were their strength. What are you trusting in that's not of God? Is it your mind? Your knowledge? Your money? Your abilities? Your gifts? Your talents? You know, God doesn't have to bring you down. down. He can let Satan do it. All that you have can destroy you. God destroyed the very place of their confidence. And he can do that to us as well. But don't forget, they'd already taken some of God's people, the Jews, into captivity from the northern tribes. But he took them because those tribes turned from God. And it reminds us of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 19 of today's modern local church where he says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begin first at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? If we're judged, what's going to happen to the unsaved, in other words? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, uh, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Wherefore, let him that suffereth according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. You mean I'm suffering and yet continue to serve him? Oh, yes, because nothing is too hard for God. You can do it in his strength. Judgment begins at the house of God. I think of churches that have had pastors that have turned and led them to other directions. And Jude 4 told us that would happen. In the last days, they would turn the grace of God, which is holy and pure, into lasciviousness. Anything goes. No rules. Live like you want to. And that has happened. And that turned God's grace into, into lasciviousness. You have the contemporary church, the emerging church, in a society that lives for obtaining material. And the morals have been loosed, as well as the doctrine, from the local church. And God will first judge us. We live in an age of compromise and a weak, spineless Christianity. It's seeking to pull us along with it. And we have to develop that capacity to resist that pull. No matter who goes with them, no matter how isolated we may get, no matter how tired we get of taking such a stand, but we must see that absolutely, if we'll just walk with the Lord, and while we hate those things they do, 
We must cultivate a heart of love for the souls of those that disagree, seeking not to compromise, but to bring them back to the way of righteousness. Many are giving heed today to seducing spirits, and that's because it is the last days. The Bible told us that would happen. But nothing is too hard for God. Don't forget, God was ready to destroy the world with a flood. But then Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord says, I'll give him another 120 years. King Josiah comes on the scene. His father, Manasseh, was the most wicked king Jerusalem ever had, and God says, okay, I'm going to destroy it. Josiah turns to God. The Lord says, I'm still going to destroy it, but not in Josiah's day. Not in Josiah's day. The only reason the churches are still standing today, and the only reason that judgment hasn't come worldwide yet today is because of the grace of God and people that are willing to stand for Jesus Christ no matter what the cost. Even if it's job, even if it's family, even if it's friends, they stand. My friend, don't be ashamed at his appearing as a Christian. Don't be saved so as by fire. More than ever, we need men and women who will stand and, and then when they take that stand, withstand the attacks of the devil that come as a result of standing for the Lord. Turn from the philosophies that fulfills the lust of the flesh instead of the fullness of the Spirit of God. Now, Saved so as by fire is a show that a Christian doesn't have a real love in his heart that he ought to have for God. But you know what? And I don't suggest you do this. I suggest that you do all in your power to obey God and live according to his word and be the witness he wants you to be. But I'd much rather, a billion times rather, be saved so as by fire than to be in the best place in hell. The lake of fire is real. Just imagine being dissolved of hope in a burning, fiery lake where you're tormented day and night forever and ever. There's no escape. There's no ceasing to exist. But again, you say, preacher, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the depths of depravity to which I've sunk. And you're right. I don't. But it's not up to me. In Romans 5.20, the Bible says, where sin abounded, God's grace did much more abound. We find out in John 6.37, Jesus said, if you'll come to him, he'll in no wise cast you out. But now you're coming to him as your Lord and God. You're not just going to say, oh, I'll say these words, and that'll make me all right, and I can do what I want to. No, you're entering into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, where he's head, he's God. You're submitted to him, but he's a loving father. He's a loving God. And when you put your faith in him and you live his way, his commandments are not grievous. It's a pleasure to live for him. There is nothing too hard for God. He loves you. 
And he will save you if you come to him today. You say, even me with what I've done, how I've lived, he will save you because he loves you. The blood of Jesus Christ has already paid the penalty for your sin. You just have to come and receive it. And you say, oh, how can he do that? Because he rose from the dead. He bodily rose from the dead. Now he's in heaven, preparing a place for anyone who will receive him. He's preparing a place. Hey, why not let him prepare a place for you in heaven? Because with God, nothing is impossible. Let's bow our heads, please.